You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Pastor Josh gave me a lot of latitude when it came to uh, deciding on, on what we would bring in terms of a message. Tonight he said I could, or this afternoon, he said basically I could preach on anything as long as it was, as it was biblical and, and uh, God-honoring and uh, hopefully helpful, so uh, hopefully we've, we've chosen well. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Job chapter 2, verse 11. The book of Job has been uh, much in my heart over the last year. It, uh, it, it, it is a, I would say, an underappreciated book. It's, it's extraordinarily rich, and it, it feels extraordinarily timely. Uh, I remember hearing John Piper say a number of years ago that one of the urgent pastoral tasks in this generation is to reacquaint God's people with suffering. We have, uh, I, I think we've been gutted, you could almost say, uh, by the prosperity gospel. It is ubiquitous. I mean, even, even those of us who, um, you know, who would criticize the prosperity gospel in its most egregious manifestations uh, don't even realize the extent to which our own language, our own thoughts. I, I regularly have the experience as a pastor of sitting down with someone who is suffering and Obviously, if, if a person is, is suffering, they're allowed, they're allowed to be destabilized. They're allowed to be disoriented. But the theological confusion is new. Pe- people saying, you know, I never thought this would happen to me. I'm a good person. I, I go to church. I tithe. And you, you tilt your head and, and you almost like, where is that coming from? And, and of course, it's, it's coming from 20 or 30 years of sort of the, the background noise of, of prosperity gospel. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, the book of Job washes over us like a giant corrective stream. And, and normally when, when we would read the book of Job or, or preach from the book of Job, we would be talking about suffering or we would be talking about providence, dark providence, or maybe we would be talking even about theodicy for the philosophically minded. But uh, today I just want to take a slightly different angle and, and talk about friendship, specifically being a friend to someone who is, who is suffering. And even maybe more specifically, how to, how to speak to people uh, who are suffering. This is a very practical message, um, and, and yet it feels also extraordinarily relevant uh, I, I did a funeral on Friday, and then uh, a friend of mine passed away on Thursday. And then uh, this morning I learned that another friend of mine, uh, his wife committed suicide. And so all of a sudden, I feel like I'm preaching to myself, and you're just sort of invited to listen in if you choose. Uh, it, it, it feels to me as though I'm spending a lot of time right now sitting with people who are suffering. And so who knows uh, why God directed us here, but, but here we are, and I, I think it is very practical and it is very relevant. And there really is nowhere else in the Bible you'd want to go as a, uh, more than the book of Job as a resource on this, on this topic. If you know anything about the book of Job in terms of its structure and layout, you know that it has a, a fairly brief introduction uh, the book of Job has a, a two-chapter-long prose introduction, meaning there's, there's a, bit, a bit of a narrative, a bit of a story. And then there's an, another narrative-style conclusion at the very end where uh, we find out what happened to Job and, and how his life uh, finished up. But then in between, there's a 39-chapter-long dialogue, conversation, between Job and his friends. So obviously this is the go-to resource in the Bible when it comes to talking about how to be a friend to someone who is suffering. Now also I would say if you've, if you've read the book of Job and maybe even if you've read a commentary on the book of Job or, or you've, Calvin has a very famous book of sermons on the book of Job. John Calvin loved 
the book of Job, which if you know John Calvin is probably not a huge surprise to you, he lived a hard life and he suffered a great deal and so he had a great interest in the book of Job. So if you've read one of those commentaries, if you've read that book of sermons, you know that, that part of the tricky part about reading the book of Job is the fact that there is a ton of error in it. Uh, intentional error, meaning, meaning that's not a challenge to the inerrancy of the scriptures. I don't mean that. I'm, I, I mean, there was a lot of talking before they landed on the truth. Uh, in, in, in fact, uh, Job's friends are essentially wrong. Now, what's tricky is that most of the time, in most other situations, talking to most other people, everything they said would have been right. But, but they were wrong in terms of what they said to Job. I think it was Calvin who said that Job's friends make a poor case well, meaning they were wrong, but they said it well. Job makes a good case poorly, meaning he was right, but he, he got frazzled. He, he was, he, at times he said things too strongly. Uh, but that makes for a pretty complicated book of the Bible, doesn't it? You have to, and it, it amuses me how often people use lines from Job as like Facebook memes when they clearly have not done the research and realize that this is, this is a statement that is clearly rejected in the book of Job and you've turned it into a Facebook meme. Uh, you have to be super, it's not a good book for memeing. Uh, if, if there is a good book for memeing, I'm not sure that I've found it, but uh, certainly Job is not the book. You gotta be slow, you gotta be careful, and you gotta think long and hard. Because basically everything bad that they did and everything good that they did is, is collected and presented to us as an opportunity to think about how to be a friend and how to minister to people who are suffering. So we'll read the, the brief narrative portion of the story wherein Job's friends are introduced, and then we'll dip in and out of the dialogue and make some observations as to what we should and shouldn't do when speaking and ministering to people who are suffering. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 11 of Job chapter two. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, if you haven't read the book of Job, I'll just summarize all this evil that had come upon him. Uh, you, You recall that in those first two chapters, Job is presented to us as an extraordinarily rich and blessed man. He is living his best life now, right? He's he, he is that guy. Uh, he's, he's rich, he's well-respected, he has a beautiful family, uh, and he's, he's got it all. But then in a, in a, a series of catastrophes, he, he loses it all. Uh, he loses his, his business, his wealth, he loses his property. And then in a natural disaster, a very unusual natural disaster, all of his children are crushed in a collapsed building. And, and then he loses his health and his marriage sours all in a, in a very short period of time. So when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to begin this afternoon by looking at what Job's friends did right. The text says, and I, and I realize you don't have PowerPoint, I, I, I didn't send that, but uh, this is, if you're a note taker, this is a very simple division. We're talking first about what Job's friends did right, and we'll make a few observations, then we'll talk about what they didn't do so well. So we're talking about what they did right, and the first thing you could write down if you're a note taker is they came and sat with him. Look at the end of verse 11 there. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Then look at verse 13. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So before we notice all that they did wrong and point out all the errors in in their theology, let's be careful to notice what they did right. They they came to him at their own expense. They, They made an appointment to come together 
And they, they traveled to meet him. And, and they didn't take an Uber or an airplane as we might today. They walked great distances. It's interesting to note their names. Uh, the commentators make suggestions about uh, where they were from based on their names. They came from a long way. They traveled on dangerous roads, probably walking most of the way, maybe riding on an animal. We don't know exactly. But they came a long way at great expense to sit with their friend who was suffering. Francis Anderson gets it exactly right, in my opinion, when he says this. They were true friends. They were true friends. Bringing to Job's lonely ash heap the compassion of a silent presence, closed quote. Isn't that good? I, I think, to be perfectly honest with you, that we, we often move far too quickly into counselor mode when dealing with hurting people. We, we go to visit someone who has lost a child or who has been diagnosed with cancer, and we immediately begin to spout our favorite Bible verses, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then we slam our Bibles closed and we moonwalk out of the kitchen, believing that we have done great work for the Lord today when in fact we have conducted ourselves as fools. Part of wisdom is understanding that there is, according to Ecclesiastes 3.7, a time to be silent and a time to speak. When a person is suffering terribly, they don't need your seven favorite Bible verses, at least not at first. What they need is for you to wash the dishes. What they need is for you to come into the house, make a pot of coffee, do some laundry, and then sit down silently. They need you to just sit there. They don't need you to speak, not at first. They're not in the place to hear what you have to say. Their brain is in shock. They're not able to hear what you have to say. Have you ever been with people in the hours after they learn of the death of a loved one? Uh, they're, they're, They're not thinking straight. They don't have the head space to process what you're saying. They're not entirely in control of what they're saying, and they don't want to end up counseling you, which inevitably ends up happening if you open your mouth. So just say nothing. Be like Job's friends. Come, sit, and be quiet. Just sit there. Be there and identify with their pain and agony. And that's the second thing. Again, if you're writing these down, things Job's friends did well, they identified with his pain and agony. Look at verse 12 again. The text says, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. This is something that we struggle with in the West. In, I will say in Canada in particular, But we see it again and again in the Bible, Old Testament and New. The Apostle Paul told his people, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Identify with people in their sorrows. You know, it's interesting. In in my experience, God often gives us reason for rejoicing, even in seasons of tremendous sorrow. This, This morning, as I said at our church, was a hard morning. Uh, We just received some very difficult news on, on two different fronts. Uh, and, and so there was, a, there was a heavy spirit this morning. And yet, interestingly, we were celebrating a child's first-time profession of faith, and we were also celebrating the, the birth of, a, of another child to another couple. And, and so we were a very human church this morning, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. That's it's a big part of what it is to be a Christian community, isn't it? Jesus knew about this. He knew both sides of this. Uh, Jesus knew how to be at a wedding, didn't he? He was the life of the party, literally, at the wedding in Cana. And he knew how to be at a funeral, too. He visited some friends who'd lost a loved one. This is remarkable. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Isn't that interesting? Think about that. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He, he, he knew that, that this was all going to work out for God's glory. He, he knew the good that would come of this. 
and he spoke of none of it. Instead, he, he went, he saw, and he wept. He identified with their pain and suffering. This is so important. If I, again, I, I, I don't want to keep apologizing for how practical this is. Some, some messages should be practical. Uh, but I would be so bold as to say that a good Christian dances at weddings and weeps at funerals. You're not, you're not Baptist enough that I have to apologize for that statement, am I? No, good. I don't even know if such Baptists exist anymore, but I will tell you this, because I, I pastor a Baptist church. I struggled with this in, in the early part of my pastorate. Like, I'm a grown-up now, and uh, so I actually began in ministry, I suppose it's my beginning in ministry, in this church. I was a, a youth intern and, uh, at King Bible Church here, and then uh, I was... Uh, while going to seminary, I, I began uh, my ministry career. Actually, I was finishing university and just beginning seminary when I was working at Calvary Baptist Church in Oakville. And uh, so my whole ministry career has kind of been in Baptistic churches of one, of one type or another. But as a youth pastor, I didn't think too much about this because you can do anything as a youth pastor. And as long as you're telling kids about Jesus and you don't forget to buy the chips, nobody gives you a hard time. And, and you don't break anything. But uh, when I became a grown-up pastor up here at uh, First Baptist Church in Aurelia, I wasn't exactly sure how this, this part worked. And, uh, and I remember you know, doing a lot of weddings and sort of feeling like, I probably have to maintain a certain dignity here. And, and dancing is not a highly dignified activity. Things shake and move that should never shake and move, and uh, particularly as I get older. And I have more shaking and moving parts now than ever before. And I, I just, so I just thought, you know what, I, I'll just sort of stand on the edges and, uh, you know, just do the, I'm there with you, um, cheering for you. And, and I wasn't sure, but I, I've, I'll, I mean, I don't mean to be trite, but at the same time, in the la- I would say in the last two years, I've just, so I really want to enter in with people in their seasons of joy. And so I kind of wait now and I see if, you know, if mom and dad are on the dance floor rejoicing, I'm going out there too, because this is their big moment. And if they're excited, I want to be excited. And, and I, if I may be so bold, I would just say, there is a sense in which you cannot care for people. You cannot influence people. You cannot pastor people. You know, and I use that in a, in a very Protestant sense. We're all shepherds. But you cannot shepherd people. You cannot influence. You cannot pastor people if you will not enter into their highest joys and also enter into their deepest sorrows. And so not to oversimplify, but I do think that a Christian dances at weddings and weeps at funerals. You, you enter in. And, and, and this is something that Job's friends did well. They didn't say anything at this point because they didn't know what to say. They didn't yet really understand what was going on. They didn't want to say anything that would be unhelpful later on. That was wise. So they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those were culturally recognized symbols of identification. Now, again, I mentioned this is not something that we do well in our culture. We don't have a lot of culturally understand. If I tore my robes and threw dust in my head, I'm not sure that would communicate a great deal of anything. Uh, We don't have it. We have soup and lasagna as symbols of identification in sorrow. I wish we had more of those things. But we go with what we have. This is not our strong suit as Westerners in general, as Canadians in particular, but this is an important part of the process. Come, sit, weep, enter in, Identify and wait until your loved one is ready to talk. So that would be the third thing that Job's friends did very well. They waited until Job was ready to talk. That's one of the details we almost always overlook in this story. There's sort of a pop, one of my experiences with Christians, and, I, and I, I'm only saying this now because having done the podcast series through Job, I received a lot of correspondence from people all over the world about the book of Job. And one of the things that most Christians don't know about Job until they read carefully the book of Job is that actually Job is the one who began the conversation. This, sort of in our minds, there's this popular myth, mythology around Job that his friends were bad guys 
who sort of showed up and just started talking and everything they said was, you know, made Job's situation worse. But, but that's, that's not what the text says. Look at Job chapter three, verse one. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open. Job's friends came from a long way away. They tore their clothes. They threw dust on their heads. They lifted up their voices and wept. And then they sat with Job, the text says, in silence, in silence for seven days. Then look at the very next verse in the story, Job 3, verse 1. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. You hearing that? It was Job who broke the silence, and it was Job who decided that he was ready to speak. He was ready to talk about it. He wanted to understand. And of course, at that point, his friends had no option but to engage with him. And yes, that's where things rapidly began to go sideways. But again, they were dealing with things they didn't understand. But let's at least set the record straight. It's important, I think, for us to notice that it was Job who opened the discussion. Job decided when he wanted to begin talking, and his friends very wisely waited for that moment. Again, practically speaking, I would say that that most of us, particularly here in the West, particularly here in Canada, and I'm going to go one step further and say particularly as evangelicals, as the people who believe rightly that the Bible speaks to every situation, I think most of us move far too quickly into the dialogue portion of spiritual care and counseling. We want to say something when often it is our silent, identifying, waiting presence that is most effective, particularly in the immediate aftermath of a personal tragedy. Stanley Hauerwas has a book called Suffering Presence, and in it he tells the story of trying to minister to a friend whose wife had recently committed suicide. I mentioned that I I very much identify with the story today. He says this, as often as I have reflected on what happened in that short space of time, I have also remembered how inept I was in helping Bob. I did not know what could or should be said. I did not know how to help him start sorting out such a horrible event so that he could go on. All I could do was be present. But time has helped me to realize that this is all he wanted, namely my presence. For as inept as I was, my willingness to be present was a sign that this was not an event so horrible that it drew us away from all other human contact. Life could go on. I now think that at that time, God granted me that marvelous privilege of being a presence in the face of profound pain and suffering, even when I did not appreciate the significance of being present. That's what I want you to see, the significance of suffering presence. Job's friends did a lot right. They came, they identified, and they sat in silence as a gesture of love to their hurting friend. Their presence said to Job, your suffering has not separated you from us. We're here. You can talk or not talk. It's up to you. But we're here, and when you're ready to talk, we'll be here. That is true friendship. Don't skip that part. The dialogue will happen, inevitably, because people eventually want to understand. And when that happens, you can be helpful there too. But of course, that brings us into the realm of what Job's friends did wrong. So this is our second category if you're a note taker. We're noticing now what Job's friends did wrong. Now I want to be very clear. Their error was not in speaking per se. I think sometimes in the post-evangelical world, and I think it would be hard to argue that we're in a post-evangelical world, it used to be that evangelicals all by and large believed the same things. There were just minute differences in practice. You know, When I was a kid, Baptists and Alliance and, and uh, independent evangelicals and Pentecostals all believe basically the same thing. We all believe the same things about Jesus and the Bible and whatnot. And uh, the differences were minute, at least to my eyes. You know, the Alliance people sang with their hands at shoulder level. Pentecostals had both hands and sometimes the ankles going. Uh, you know, Baptists kept both feet on the ground and, and uh, swayed. Uh, and the, but those things didn't seem terribly significant to me uh, because, you know, on all the other major points, we were more or less the same. Uh, 
But uh, as, as you probably know, there's no longer anything approaching that, that level of consensus, and the differences are more significant now. And our approach to ministry has changed significantly. One of the changes that I've observed in evangelicalism is that wide swaths of evangelicalism have become embarrassed about any form of gospel talk. And so you start hearing ridiculous things like, you know, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Well, of course, what does that, what does that mean? You know, try miming substitutionary atonement, right? Like, that, that's a rather difficult thing to do. And, and, and there's a, so there's a sense in which in wide swaths of evangelicalism, being nice and being good is highly valued, but speaking true and speaking gospel has, has become disparaged. So I, just, I say that, I'll just be very clear. Job's friends, the error they make was not in speaking. You know, words are a gift from God. Uh, without words, we couldn't make sense of the things that happened to us. We couldn't bring comfort. So their error was not in speaking per se. There's a time for speaking. Again, Ecclesiastes 3.7 says, there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. Wisdom, therefore, and Job is part of the wisdom corpus in the Bible, wisdom, therefore, is figuring out where you are in the process. Is it time to speak, right? You don't want to speak too soon, but eventually you have to say something. You cannot preach the gospel without words, And you cannot bring gospel comfort to a friend who's suffering without words. So eventually there is is a time to speak. Job's friends weren't wrong to speak. They were just wrong in what they said. They were dealing with something very complicated, and it turns out that their theology was too simplistic to meet the challenge of Job's situation. So that's the first thing they did wrong. If you're making a list of what they did wrong now, number one, they spoke beyond their competence. Job's friends were believers, that that much seems very clear, but they were uneducated believers. They were untrained believers. They were not, by and large, thoughtful men. They had a very cursory understanding of who God is and how God works. And listen to this, because they were rich, because they were successful, because they were healthy, and because they were happy, they had not thought deeply about life. Now, just, just pause. If you're any kind of Bible reader, you've noticed this, haven't you? You've noticed how hard it is for rich, healthy, secure people to walk closely with God, haven't you? To think deeply about God. I think it was Tim who told me, uh, there's nothing harder for God than to bless people. Uh, because when you bless broken people, that's the line, isn't it? There's nothing harder for God to do than to bless broken people. Because when you bless broken people, they very quickly become arrogant and self-sufficient, and they forget God. Think in the Old Testament of how many times it says, you know, when you began to drink water from cisterns you did not dig, and when you began to live in houses that you did not build, you forgot the Lord. Right? Rich Healthy, happy people do not think deeply about the Lord. They do not consider carefully the effect of their own sin. And so they tend to develop very shallow, very simplistic, very trite theologies. Of course, that's that's a danger for us here in North America, isn't it? I mean, so one of the realities that we're dealing with in in the church today is that we've enjoyed the longest stretch of unbroken peace and prosperity in the history of humankind, it it, it seems, anyway. I can't think in history. It would be difficult to think of a time in history that has known a longer stretch of peace, a longer stretch of increasing prosperity, increasing health outcomes, you know, we think, uh, it's just thinking of John Owen because you, you, Pastor Tim just gave me a book by John Owen, which is very kind of him to do. And uh, I might get the numbers wrong, so jump in if you like. But uh, was it 11 children that John Owen had? Yeah, I think it was 11. John Owen had 11 children, and 10 of them died in childhood. Only one of his children grew to be an adult. She got married and I believe she died of tuberculosis or consumption, one of those two, two months later. 
I mean, that's just a couple generations ago. The, the increases we've experienced in terms of health outcomes, the, we're healthier, happier, safer, richer than ever before, and as a result, we've never... There's a, John Owen is often referred to as the greatest theologian in the English language. One assumes there's a connection between losing 11 of your children and thinking deeply about God. Rich, healthy, happy people don't think deeply about God. They develop shallow, trite theology and they become very unhelpful counselors to people who are suffering. You can't do serious work without serious thought and preparation. And rich, healthy, happy people tend not to prepare for such work. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, counseling a loved one through a tragedy is serious work. It's the most terrifying work you could ever undertake. Francis Anderson says very insightfully here, there is no act of pastoral pastoral care more unnerving than trying to say the right thing to someone hysterical with grief. I can tell you from experience that this is true. When I was a young pastor, I, uh, I was assigned to work with an older pastor, uh, which was a great grace in my life. Um, I am nervous about the tendency nowadays to send out 24-year-old church planters to be the sole shepherd in you know, congregations that they're expected to plant and lead. I think, personally, I think that's madness. I, I hope I haven't just ruffled any feathers. You're not sending out any 24-year-old church planters, I hope. But anyway... Uh, I, I had the, the great blessing of working under a, an older man when I first started out in ministry. And uh, I remember I was asked to do a funeral for a couple in our church that we were friends with, my wife and I. So they were young and we were young. And, and they, they had had a baby that then died in the hospital. So pretty much the worst thing ever uh, that, you could, that you could think of. And I was asked to do a little funeral uh, in the hospital. And my senior pastor, I don't remember if it was his idea or my idea, I suspect it was his idea, he very wisely said that he would come along. And uh, so he was going to ride shotgun with me, and, uh, and I, was, I was going to do this little funeral. And it's a good thing he did, because uh, about three minutes into the funeral, just seeing this little tiny body and these friends of ours, and we had recently had a child, I just started sobbing, and it was like ugly cry, uncontrollable, fluids out of every hole in my face, sobbing, and it it didn't stop. And so he just took over and finished the service. And I remember just feeling a total fool. It's one of those horrific failures in ministry where you drive home thinking, I'm not called to this. This is a terrible job that someone else should do. Uh, this is not for me. And you know, he, he was very gracious and, says, and, and said, that's the hardest thing you'll ever be asked to do. And you're just starting out. You'll get better and the job will never get harder. You know, you'll be fine. But, but I'm not sure that anyone is ever fine doing that. Uh, this is the hardest thing ever. To, to offer comfort to someone in that situation is the hardest thing you'll ever be asked to do. And and if you go into that with a Sunday school faith, a a greeting card theology, a a, a your best life now worldview, you are gonna do far more harm than good. And that's basically what happens in this story. Job's friends were healthy, rich, successful men who had never thought deeply about God and as a result had nothing useful to say to him in his hour of need. So let's learn from their bad example. Do the work before you face the crisis. Second thing they did that was really unhelpful was that they filled in the gaps in Job's story. They had a very basic understanding of God. They knew that God was just. They knew that he was all-seeing. They knew that he was all-powerful. So if he's just and he sees everything and he he can make anything happen, they operated on that assumption. And so when, when Job starts asking them what in the world is going on, they do what all human beings do, and they filled in the gaps in Job's story. Job must have been mean to the poor, they said. His, his, his business enterprises uh, were, were probably unjust. Uh, he, he, he likely sent some widows away hungry, 
He'd become proud. Obviously, that was the issue. And therefore, repenting of those particular evils would be the fastest way out of his present crisis. That's what they said. Eliphaz said that exactly, explicitly. Job 22, 9 to 10, if you want to flip forward to that. Listen to what he says. He says, you have sent widows away empty. Imagine saying that to someone in, in sorrow. You have, here's what's happened to you. Here's why you're sick. Here's why your kids have died. You have sent widows away empty. And the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you. And sudden terror overwhelms you. Right? Bingo, bango, Bob's your uncle, Job. You've been careless in your charity. Your business enterprises have crushed the poor. Therefore, the all-knowing, all-seeing God has brought you up short. So what you need to do is go ahead and repent of that, and he'll set you back to rights. That, that was his counsel. Look at verse 21 in the same chapter, Job 22, 21. 22, 21. Agree with God, right? Just get on page with God. Agree with God and be at peace, and thereby good will come to you. Boom. That's all you got to do. Confess, confess, restore. If you've taken, restore and be done. That is bad listening. Job never confessed to any of those things. In fact, he emphatically denied doing any of those things, but they didn't listen. They filled in the blanks and that's not helpful. We have to listen longer and we have to listen better. John Calvin, I've mentioned his sermons on Job, one of the best books you could ever buy uh, I think it's uh, D.A. Carson who's fond of saying, you know, sell your shirt and, and buy that book. I'm not sure that selling your shirt could get you a copy of this book. It's probably worth more than your shirt, but it, it, it's a great book to have. John Calvin's Sermons on Job, filled with very practical pastoral advice to those comforting people who are suffering. He says in this theme, by this we are admonished when we wish to comfort neighbors in their sorrows and trials, not to jump to conclusions. As there are many who are forever harping on the same string and they do not consider the person to whom they speak, for we must treat one person differently from another person. Isn't that good? Can I tell you? As a pastor who often has to go around and undo the counsel that's given by others, I can tell you that this is one of the most common mistakes that Christians make when dealing with people who are suffering. We, we project, we, we see our own struggles in the story that we're not listening to. We see what happened to our cousin Sue in the story that we're not listening to. Oh, it would be marvelous if one of you would invent a little shock collar that we could all wear that would give us just a little zap every time we begin a sentence by saying, this is just like what happened to me that time, or this is just like what happened to my cousin Sally. No, it is not. That's called transference. That's the technical name. You can call it bad listening. It's also called bad counseling. Every story is different. Every marriage is different. Do you know how many times I've had to undo, you know, someone, someone you know, finds themselves counseling a, a sister with a bad marriage, and it becomes an opportunity for them basically to unload all of their bad marriage. You know, she, Sister Mary begins by saying, you know, my, my husband yelled at me yesterday because the dinner was late. Well, that's just like in my marriage where, and then off we go on a story that has nothing to do with anything related to, to this poor sister's struggle. And it, it happens all the time. Every marriage is different. Every hurt is different. So, shh, right? That could be one of your takeaways. Write that in the margin of your Bible. Shh. We have to listen longer and we have to listen better before we speak. Now, we all need to do better at this. I don't want to give you the impression that I don't struggle with this because I'll be honest with you. Pastors are the worst at this. We hear our last session in our present session all the time, right? And we begin, we begin getting lazy and we see patterns. I can't tell you how many times the voice in my head when I'm 10 minutes into a story that's probably gonna be 50 minutes and I just wanna shout out, stop sinning! That's the answer! I don't need the rest of the story! Stop it! 80% of the time, that eventually will be the right thing to say. 
But a lot of the times, it's just me not being a good listener. So we do need to listen longer because every situation is, is different. That was the hurtful mistake that was made by Job's well-meaning friends. Third mistake they made flows very naturally out of the second. They too quickly diagnosed Job's condition. So if I could make a medical analogy, I'd say their second mistake was not listening carefully to Job's medical history. Their third mistake related to that, it was settling too quickly upon a medical diagnosis. Basically, Job's friends decided that he had succumbed to the sins of a rich man. He had neglected the poor, he was arrogant, and therefore they diagnosed him as a terrible sinner in need of therapeutic humiliation. Zophar was absolutely sure that's what was going on. He said in Job 20, 19 to 23, for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house he did not build in the fullness of his sufficiency, right? You got rich man's disease. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. So you're arrogant, greedy, you're a self-indulgent sinner, and God is bringing you down a peg with some therapeutic suffering. That's what's going on, they said. They were drawing a line backwards from Job's experience and making judgments about the state of Job's soul. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. Tremper Longman III says here, the book of Job helps remind us not to draw conclusions about a person's spiritual condition based on whether they are suffering. Brothers and sisters, let's be very careful not to do that. I've seen this done. I've had this done to me. It's a, it's a very hard thing. You know, I don't, I don't want to whine and share stories, but, but I, I, I will say, I've, I've had this happen and I've seen this done and Christians do this far too often. Let's, let's covenant together if we remember nothing else from this afternoon's message. Let's remember this. Let's not draw conclusions about a person's spiritual condition based on their personal suffering. A person whose child has died or whose wife has just been diagnosed with cancer does not need you telling them that you've had a dream about some rot in their foundation which you believe indicates that there is some great unconfessed sin in their life that accounts for their present trials. Do not. You remember, of course, Jesus rebuking his disciples for attempting to do that in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. They were walking along. They saw a man who had been blind from birth. And so that gave rise to the question, whose whose sin caused this man to be blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? Those were the only two options they could think of. Doesn't that make you glad for the day of Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit? Those were the only two options they could think of when they saw a person who was suffering terribly. Whose sin caused this suffering, his or his parents. Thank God for Jesus. He said, neither, neither, right? But this has happened that God would be glorified. He goes on to say, we're gonna do a work here that that was never even, they, they never even thought of the dark providence of God despite that the book of Job was in their Bible. All that is to say, Jesus was very clear to his disciples that they were not capable of making those connections. And here's what's interesting. It's not that such connections don't exist. I want to be very clear on that, too. Do you remember one time Jesus healed the paralytic fellow who'd been let down through Peter's roof? Do you remember what he said to the fellow? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Meaning what? Clearly that fellow's illness was related to his sin. Jesus can make those connections, but you can't. But you can't. Nothing but harm comes to the cause of Christ when Christians attempt to draw lines they're not qualified to draw. Nothing but harm happened to the name of Christ when people started saying, this hurricane that hit this city was because of this particular sin that occurs in our culture. Nothing but harm came as a result of that. We're not to draw those lines. Now, obviously, it is appropriate to ask a person, 
to ask a person if there might be some hidden sin or some cherished bitterness in their heart that would block the blessings of the Lord. It's appropriate. It's appropriate to ask that question. We ask that question all the time at our church at elder prayer. On Monday nights, we have elder prayer. We invite folks who are suffering to come. The elders will pray for them. And we always read from James 5. And in James 5, they talk about confessing sin in the context of receiving healing. So we always ask, brother, sister, is there some sin in your life that would keep you today from receiving a blessing from the Lord? And if they say no, we ask nothing further. That's between them and the Lord. And we've had people say yes and go on to confess sins and to better prepare themselves to take hold of a healing. But we're not in a position to make those connections. In the church, such things are established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, not by your dreams, not by your impressions, and not by assumptions. So important to remember that. Do not fill in the blanks and do not jump to conclusions, but do offer hope. That's the last mistake that Job's friends made if you're tracking them. They failed to offer Job hope. Job's friends tried to make everything work out theologically in the here and now. Basically, they suffered from a theological error that we refer to now as over-realized eschatology. That is to say, they assumed that everything works out in the here and now. Right? Everything will eventually work out. If you read Job and his friends, if you read that dialogue, near the end, it's basically an argument where they say, we all agree that God is just. We all agree that you reap what you sow. Even Job agrees with that. But they're, so they're basically just saying, Job, what the problem is, your chickens have come home to roost. That's it. That's it. Because eventually in your life, they say, wicked people always get what they deserve. You might, you, you might have started out well, Job. You might have had your kids. You might have had your happy marriage. You might have had your, your rich business. You might have had your health. But eventually, your chickens come home to roost. Eventually, wicked people get what they deserve. Wicked people die poor, stripped of their possessions. They die sick and appropriately shamed. And, and good people die healthy, happy, in the sunshine and enjoying the adoration of their grandchildren. That's, that's how it always works out, they said. They had no category for unjust suffering, and they had no expectation of future judgment. That's over-realized eschatology. The belief that all the blessings of God can or will be experienced by righteous people in this life and all the chastisements and punishments of God will be experienced by bad people in this life. It will all work out here and now. That was their most egregious theological error. Job tried many times to talk them out of it. He asked really good questions. Job 21.7, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? That's a good question, Right? He said, come on, guys, you're, you, 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 if you have eyes in your head, you, you have to know that your theological system has holes in it. We all know wicked people who die at 95, surrounded by their grandchildren, with money in the bank. We've all seen that. So if some wicked people die well, then surely some good people die hard. Surely. And therefore, there must be some kind of final reckoning on the other side. That was Job's hope. He had to get there on his own. His friends didn't help at all. But Job held fast. He said, and you'll know these words, Job 19, 25 to 27, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Are you hearing that? Job says that he knows that at some point after his death, after his own body has rotted in the grave, I shall see my Redeemer. I shall stand before God in my flesh. I'll be resurrected and I will be judged and vindicated. I will receive justice, recompense, and closure. That was Job's hope. And that is the hope that we need to bring to hurting people. You need to say to your hurting friends and loved ones, friend, I don't know why this has happened. And I don't know whether we will ever see anything good come out of this. Be very careful. Be very careful in saying to hurting friends, I'm sure God will bring good out of this. 
I had a, a very good friend of mine pass away when I was a teenager. And uh, she, was a, she was a Christian girl. She was in a car accident. Uh, and I, because I was very good friends with the family, I was in the house after someone had said something well-meaning but very unhelpful to the mom at the funeral. Uh, they had said, uh, I'm sure the Lord will bring good out of this. Many people heard the gospel, and maybe that's why your daughter died in a car accident, so that many people would hear the gospel today. And she was hurt and angered by that. You know, she said, my, my daughter shared the gospel with her friends at school. Had she been given another 60 years of life, she would have shared the gospel with thousands of people. So that, if that's how God does math, count me out. Yeah, be careful. Be careful. You need to say to your friends, I don't know whether we'll ever see anything good come out of this. But I do know this. One day you will stand before God and he will explain things to you. He'll show you all the ripples. And he will restore all that the locust has taken. He will punish those who have brought this hurt upon you. And he will vindicate you in the eyes of everyone who believed that you brought this on yourself. That will happen one day if you hold fast your faith in Christ. That is Christian counseling. That's how believers speak to friends and loved ones who are suffering. We do not fix what God alone can fix. We do not assemble puzzles when half and more of the pieces are missing. We come, we sit, we identify, and when the time is right, we speak the truth. We talk about who God is and who we are and how God has saved us through the life and death of Jesus Christ. We talk about hope and we talk about a final judgment. We talk about a God who sees, a God who repays, a God who makes all things right. We talk about a Jesus who knows our sorrows and who rose from the dead and who lives now ever before the Father to make intercession for us. That's our hope. That's our comfort. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful today for the all-sufficient word of God. Lord, we often in circles like this and circles like mine at home, we often rejoice in the authority, the inerrancy of God's word, the efficacy of God's word. Today, we are rejoicing in the sufficiency of God's word. Lord, there is guidance here for us as we prepare to offer comfort to our friends and loved ones who are suffering. Lord, I don't know why you put this particular message on my heart for this church at this particular time. You know. But Lord, may it be pressed upon us now by your Holy Spirit. May it shape and fashion us and prepare us for good works ahead, works that would bring you glory and that would bring gospel comfort to people you love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.